0: Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter Hillary Milneys, and joining us today is Scott Tannen, the CEO and founder of Bolin Branch. Hi, Scott.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, so we are at the end of the year. It's December. And we are hoping to focus our next few episodes of the Glossy Podcast around a type of year in review and year in preview. Um, look ahead and look back on, on 2017 and 2018. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on your company, Bull & Branch, and just a quick recap of what you guys have achieved this year. Any big milestones?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when you're a startup and you say that you've survived your fourth year in business, that's that's a pretty big milestone in in, in itself. Um, for us, we we launched the business in in 2014, and for those of your listeners that don't know, um, Bolin Branch is the only luxury home brand that uh, creates all of its goods um, ethically and sustainably from the ground up. So what makes us unique is the fact that that we've built in and kind of oversee our own supply chain to ensure that everybody um, who comes in contact with the product from the, the cotton farmer um, through the factory worker. And of course the customer is, is, is all treated, you know, equally, equally with dignity and respect. Um, but of course, uh, if we didn't make outstanding products, I don't think we would, we would have been able to, to grow like we have. So, um, in, uh, in 2017, as I mentioned, our fourth year in business, um, unlike a lot of startups or, or fast growing companies, um, we, we don't, stop looking at sustainability when it comes to our supply chain we look at that in every aspect of our business so um while we're still growing 50 to 75% year over year um this past year um we are profitable um and not just like a dollar profitable we actually are a real business that actually makes real money um and, and we have uh you know it, it's weird that that that's something that makes us unique but um, You know, 2017, as I think it's been for for most retailers, has been an extraordinary year. Um, There's there's no doubt about the fact that, um, you know, people are... Are continuing to uh, gravitate towards digitally native brands, and and you know the the fear that that may have been associated with buying something from a small standalone brand online that existed in the past just continues to fade away, um, especially with demographic segments that aren't early adopters and millennials and things like that. So you know we one of the things that makes our business interesting is on any given day we sell at least three units of product to every single state in the country um, and. And so, you know, we're not just focused on um, urban millennials and things like that. Not that that's not a big part of our, our audience, but um, we appeal just as much to someone that lives in North Dakota as, as lives in Dumbo. Um, and, uh, and I think that's why we've been able to grow so so you know quickly and, and sustainably.
0: So, so you definitely brought up a lot of um, interesting points that I want to touch on because we've had a, uh, several um, direct-to-consumer vertically integrated brands on the show before. And something that keeps coming up is just this idea of profitability. I like what you said, like that shouldn't make you unique, but a lot of these new brands uh, have a hard time reaching that point um, because they, they raise so much venture capital and it holds them to these higher standards. And it's it's really hard to get over that that first bump of like, you know, ten million dollars in in sales or revenue. Uh, so, how did you guys approach that? Like, what do you think that the that you guys did differently that you didn't see other brands doing in the space in order to actually become profitable? If you had to sort of give a, a few guidelines that that you would say your brand followed.
1: Yeah, I I mean, look, I think in the history of the world, um, certainly in the last fifty years, I can't I can't think of a single brand um that has actually bought a market if you really think about it right there are plenty of brands that raise tons of venture capital um and while many people will blame their failure on on a lack of 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 capital generally the failure is is something else or something else with proposition so um you know the more money you have the the sloppier you can be as a company um this isn't my first startup um you know so so I've, I've been through the process uh, a few times of growth and, and what I've realized is that you're never buying your 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 sales if you want to be in this game for for a long time if you want to create a business where your intent is to uh, to maximize your valuation um, then you're playing a very different game and you're going to, you're, you're playing a competition of how many more sales can I purchase than somebody else? Um, and you're relying on other sources of revenue or, or other sources of capital, um, because your revenue is not actually providing the capital that you need to grow. So I look at that as it's a very unsustainable model, right? It's, it's all about momentum and, and for every company that, um, is able to sell in their first four or five years or, or IPO or or whatever they happen to do. um, There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of others that aren't those magic beans and it just doesn't happen. Right. Um, So, so from the start to me, I, I think that, that, we focused on earning our sales and and we advertise, we advertise a ton, but we are profitable on every single dollar we spend. And we have to be, uh, because I I expect our cash flow to fuel our growth. And and that keeps our growth maybe a little bit more slowly. We're we're a $50, $60 million business, not a $200 million business. Um, But, you know, I, I feel pretty good that I don't need any capital from anybody to, to continue to achieve our aspirations.
0: Right. I think what you mentioned about just the sloppiness, um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like what sloppy moves are these brands taking once they've raised too much capital that this capital allows them to do?
1: Well, it could, it could be anything from um, installing a slide in your office um, to, you know, continuing to invest in different growth channels, whether it's marketing or advertising um, or over hiring or anything like that without really measuring and being able to isolate the return. Um, And said really simply, um, if, if your primary focus is the number on the top line, um, then you're immediately looking at the channels that can drive that number up the hardest and fastest and, and most explosively, um, what you often find is that the cost of that revenue, right, I can I can advertise in, let's say I was going to advertise in a billboard in Times Square, and I'm making this up as an example, mm-hmm. that might be very expensive and it might be able to generate me a million customers overnight, but the value long-term of those customers is so much lower than anybody else that all I'm doing is buying one-time revenue. I'm not buying long-term affinity. So the next time I want to acquire those customers, I might have to spend even more to acquire them, where you might look at other channels that are bringing you customers that are, are, are more of a a, a, a target fit and, and a more natural fit with your brand proposition that you acquire once and they stay with you for a long period of time and they become your advocates. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the success of any business is going to be when you can reduce the percent of your revenue that goes into marketing because that's what ultimately generates your profitability. Right. So the way you're going to do that is you have to it doesn't mean you need to market less. It means more of the marketing has to become free, which means you need more advocacy. You need people that love you, that, that believe what you believe. Um, and they, they carry that word on. When you're constantly buying your revenue, if you're in your four, year five, and you're still putting 35%, 40% of your revenue into your advertising, you know it's unsustainable. And you know there's really not a... The only way you're going to make money is if you make your product cheaper, um, you know, then... Uh, versus versus actually seeing that you have true sustainable business momentum,
0: right? And do you think that this year it was kind of a turning point for this idea that maybe these apparel consumer startups shouldn't be treated by venture capitalists the way that they have been, um, thinking that they're going to get these huge returns? I think the what happened this year with both um, Bonobos and, and Nasty Gal over the you know the year before as well uh, kind of proved that. You might have the most buzz and people know about you, but that doesn't mean that the company is going to have the grand exit that, that you might expect.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's really interesting, right? Because you have to ultimately go all the way back and look at the founders and say, what game were they playing? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in many cases, and I don't know, you know specifically with the examples that, that you've given, but I can think of a whole bunch of other um, startups that, that have been spectacular business failures, um, and then hearing about the founders and the boats that they've bought, and and their personal wealth that they've created by taking money off the table earlier, so so you have a situation in many cases where you have all this momentum. The founders have been able to, you know, what they would have called at the time, de-risking. The reality is, is that they've been able to sort of financially benefit and it was actually the short-sightedness of the investors um Mm. that ended up hurting the investors because they shouldn't have invested in these businesses that didn't actually have real business models and of course the employees is who really suffers those are the ones that are left with having worked at this shooting star of a brand that now is a stain on their resume because you know it becomes known as something that just wasn't really run very well um and i think that so so but but I still think it's extremely frothy. I see um, businesses funded all the time that that you really have to have to take a step back and say what's what's the end game there? where Where does that really kind of turn around? Um, whether it's in my category or in other categories and and um, you know, plenty, I, I think still you're you're at a point where more ideas are being funded than probably should because there is a lot of money sitting out there. I mean, you know, whether whether that money would otherwise be investing in cryptocurrency or a startup, it's it's all everybody's looking for for magic beans.
0: Right. And so you don't think that the investors have really wisened up yet?
1: Um, I personally, I, I don't I don't think so. Um, mm-hmm. I think that at the point that the investor base wisens up, um, you're going to see a massive correction Um there are too many brands doing too many things that I've tested on various different businesses, whether it's my own portfolio companies as an investor or our business, mm-hmm. where you know it's like you see you know ads in certain places and you say, I know nobody makes money on that. Absolutely nobody makes money on that. Right. Um, and yet every week you see more new brands showing up in those same places. It's like lemmings following each other off a cliff. Where, and this, they're
0: gener- yeah. where are those places?
1: I mean, I'll use out-of-home advertising as an example. Out-of-home advertising is one of the most difficult things to breed sustainability because you have a very, very small amount of time to deliver a message, right? So when I think about most emerging brands, right, they're they're really direct response brands. Your goal is to... Put an idea in someone's head, and then you have to you have to actually motivate them to sort of come to your store, so to speak, and and engage. Um, when I think of out of home advertising, I think it's a phenomenal fit for Coca Cola. I think it's a phenomenal fit for a chewing gum brand that wants you to have that high top of mind recall uh, when you get to the checkout outline. Um, do I think it sustainably sustainably can breed? You know loyalty among you know expensive f- fashion products i'm not sure um mm-hmm. i've just never really seen it work long term and that's not to say that it doesn't i mean i'm sure you know i'm sure people have have been successful but it it feels like something that's accomplishing a a um you know it's it's like one of those things that some investor oh one of my portfolio companies did this now i'll use seven portfolio companies you should do this and the question they should ask that investor is you ever actually run a company um mm-hmm. You know,
0: right? I think what comes to mind immediately f- for in that vein is is the subway rap ads. You've seen a lot of uh, digitally native, vertically integrated brands like from Think's to Casper, these massive ads on the subway. Uh, and you know, and in terms of thinking, like okay, like if one brand does it, it seems like every other brand is like, oh, okay, we we have to do that too. Uh, so I think, do you th- like? Do you think that that's going to be like? Are are these brands learning more about how best to to reach their customers? Like, What's going to change there?
1: Again, it depends on your objective. If your objective, if you've said to the marketplace, we are going to be X dollars in revenue next year Mm -hmm. and your end game. Because you've taken so much venture capital, right? The more money you've taken in, the, the fewer financial options you ultimately have. So um, as soon as you bring on some investors and you, you raise money at some huge multiple, well, now you've got to give them a two, three, four multiple on their return, which right. means you need to goose up your revenue as high as possible and then get some sucker to buy your company <laughs> for a multiple on that overinflated purchase revenue, right? Like that's the game. Right. Um, so what happens is, is somebody might say, well, from that subway ad, I'm generating $40 million in revenue. Well, the cost of that $40 million in revenue is $39 million, which means you're losing money on it. But then you get to the point where you can't afford to walk away from that much revenue, even though it's not profitable Mm -hmm. because you have no way to replace it. And so when you start down this, this, this path of sort of, um, you know, spray and pray, so to speak, um, it becomes very difficult to get off of it because if you're if you're backed by venture capitalists and you're as a founder worried am i going to keep my job am i going to be able to you know keep my team and and do all of those things you say can am i brave enough to sit down with my board and tell them look we've been growing in an unsustainable way we are going to need more and more capital and at some point no one's going to be able to give us the capital so what we actually need to do is stop doing stupid stuff and our revenue is going to drop back. But guess what? We're going to make money. I mean, what would you rather have? A $100 million business that loses $10 million or a $10 million business that makes a million?
0: Right. Yeah, I think that do, – do, so for you guys, um, when you're looking at, at all at this landscape, and like you said, this isn't – it's not your first rodeo. So I'm sure you learned a lot yeah. with your other companies. But uh, – what does work work for you guys, in terms of the marketing and the and the money that you're spending there? because you know we hear from from brand marketers all the time that the hardest part of their job is is figuring out attribution and and just knowing what what's actually working and where they yeah. should keep investing their money. so what what works for you?
1: You know, the it's still um, incredible how effective. And not scalable. One to one marketing really is. At mm-hmm. the end of the day, we spend a lot of time, in, and we've we've done it um, locally in our market and our communities, and and other you know similar communities around the country, where you know there's nothing more powerful than me driving, or somebody on my team driving and putting a pillowcase in someone's mailbox with a with a card that says "Try this out. Yeah. See if <laughs> you like it." Um, really, really hard to do that to 300 million people in this country. Um, so, so I think like anything, it's always about striking the right balance of, of reach and then trying to understand how you can deliver your message in a, in a way that's, that's ownable and differentiated and compelling. Um, uh, but I think that, I think more than anything, people forget how important the product is from a marketing standpoint. And, and I, I, I like to think about, um, I don't know if, I don't know who told me this, but, but But a long time ago, someone said, you know, marketing can fix a lot of things in a business, but it can't fix a pricing issue. It can't fix a product issue and it can't fix like a a packaging, you know, issue. Um, And packaging obviously is not applicable for a a digitally native brand to to a full extent. But um, at the end of the day, the value you're going to get out of your marketing is how well your product does at actually exceeding the expectations of the customer. And when you're advertising, you're in the business of trying to build the expectation. So what becomes very challenging, I think, for us and for everybody else is how you Build the expectation to an appropriate level, but mm-hmm. still allow your product to exceed it. Because once the product exceeds it, that's where all of the word of mouth, all the affinity, all the referral uh, comes into play, and that's been enormous for us. Word of mouth is so far and away our number one marketing channel. Um, and we advertise on podcasts, we advertise at the radio, we advertise on TV, we we do direct mail, we do catalogs, but all of that is about feeding affinity um, mm-hmm. and trying to build love and 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 a deep emotional connection with the customer, Um, you know, but but not trying to shoot, you know, so massively huge um, in terms of like creating an unrealistic expectation.
0: Right. Because like you said, you have to keep buying those customers the more massive you want to go. Absolutely. Uh, So and you guys, I know, obviously, um, that that sustainability ethically made angle, which, um, you know, we're, we're told all the time that that millennials love people love today. They want to attach themselves to a brand that that they feel good about. Um, so so that's it's a it's a great trend in the market right now, as well as being um a, a vertically integrated brand. Um, but but I think what we're what I've been finding that's interesting is that a lot of these brands um, that are new age, super modern are kind of realizing that in a lot of ways the traditional pillars of retail aren't as dead as, as we were told that they were uh, a few years ago, like physical retail and even, um, you know, third party partners, the, the middlemen. Uh, so, so I, you guys opened a store this year, is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and is that something that you had planned on doing from the, from the beginning or was that kind of a surprising move?
1: Um, it's something we've actually been, been, we had been working on, um, and thinking about for, yeah, I mean, from the time we were, once you got through that, you know, first six months phase and said, okay, are we going to actually lose our house and not have a business here? Or is this going to be something that like, that is going to kind of work? And, and, and so once we, (laughs) once Missy and I started to get out of that phase and said, okay, this is actually a business. Um, it, it, immediately became part of the plan because one of the things that, especially about, the growth we've had, but but try to understand what are the reasons somebody wouldn't buy our product, Um, especially when you have a product as we do. And, and, and I try to be as objective as possible when I say this, but our product's exceptional at any price point. It really is. It's a, it's an outstanding product. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I think about what, what, no, but I mean, but honestly it's true. I mean, I have a focus group data, Uh, I'll show you, but, um, but no, in, in, in reality, like, what are the reasons someone wouldn't buy my product? And I know that the reason they wouldn't buy their product is that they already have a product that's more satisfying. I don't actually believe that's the case. So, um, so the second point to me was, well, people want to touch and feel their betting. Um, and that's the one thing we can offer a free return rate. But that's kind of an inconvenient way to, to simply try, um, even though more and more people are being coming comfortable with it. So for us, and you know, our our thought on a retail model, this isn't sort of like you know a gratuitous monument to ourselves, which I think some some brands can can end up doing with their retail model. We we tried to make an experience that. Um, sort of highlighted the different aspects of exceptionalism in the business. So let's open the package, you know, and that was our strategy was how do we create an environment where we're opening the package? We want people to feel what the product feels like after it's been washed 20 times, like simulate a year of use, show people the manufacturing process, show them what's so different about the way we manufacture versus everybody else in our category. Make sure that everybody that walks into the store leaves feeling that they learned something and also feeling... And understanding that every other product of our type that was sold in the same shopping mall um, was inferior at any price point, and and I think so so that's always been a goal of ours. And then I think the reality is the, you know, you have to. Nobody builds a strategy to say I want to open a store because. When you're doing a you know fifty sixty seventy five million dollar online business and you look at a retail store and say wow this is great it can it can generate you know a couple million dollars a year out of this one store um, but then you look at the relative cost of operating a store it's not a massive money maker as an individual you've got to start thinking about it as like okay what does this look like as fifteen stores as twenty stores um, so we wanted to build a concept that we thought was scalable. Um, you know, and, and, and rapidly scalable, but also you use this as sort of a test kitchen um, because fortunately the Mallet Hills is about a mile and a half from our office. So, Mm -hmm. um, so we, we've, we've completely reset the store now three times. We've learned a lot from customers and now we're seeing like unbelievable performance. And and what's been amazing to us is 75% of the people that walk in the door are already aware of the brand. Um, And so our thesis was correct is, is that you know feeling the product was that last step in the decision making process too, um, to finally deciding to make the leap and, and and try us. So it's been it's been fantastic,
0: right? And and that's interesting because when you think about okay, well, you need to solve this problem that people want to try something that before they buy it. There's. The other way, other than opening a store, to do that is make returns free and and make shipping free and or give people a chance to try that out. Do you think that the store gives more like re- return on investment than these online capabilities that would would free people of any um, you know hesitation that they have of of shopping online? I, I
1: think it certainly can. I, I think it's remember the retail shopper is certainly more passive. The the active shopping became more active, right? So mm-hmm. it's kind of like you know, if you, if somebody starts searching on the internet um, for sheets, they're already demonstrating they're interested in the category. But if somebody's riding a subway, um, they're not demonstrating any sort of interest in the category. So, right. um, so in this case, they're going to the mall and they're saying, "I'm interested in shopping in general." Um, but but you still have that very passive walker by. Most people did not walk into the mall in our case of of saying, I'm going to go to the mall and buy some sheets. Um, If they did that, they probably would have just gone to Bloomingdale's or restoration hardware or one of the, the major retailers that were, were there anyway. So Mm -hmm. our goal is to try to catch them um, on their way to, to one of those other retailers, number one or number two, to suddenly pop out because they've heard about us or seen us in other places and say, Oh wow, I want to see what all the hype is about. I want to see what people are talking about. Um, And, and I think that, that, digitally native brands, we're all competing with each other, right? I'm not actually competing with any other betting brands. From, from a sales standpoint, I'm pe- competing with Bloomingdale's and people like that, right? <laughs> um, but from a media standpoint, I'm competing against every other e-commerce brand because all we're doing is driving up each other's cost per acquisition because we're flooding the marketplace with more inventory. Right. So you reach a point where you say, If you're responsible, you reach a point where you say, it's starting to get too expensive for me to scale beyond X or Y, um, in digital. Um, so now I got to look at TV or I got to look at out of home or whatever it happens to be. Um, I think retail becomes another channel that people look at and say, wow, I can actually start getting an efficient cost per acquisition in this channel because there isn't another digitally native fashion brand that's here or whatever, you know, and, and in, in, in our case, um, you know, that that's, that's proven true. Um. But it's also it's it's challenging. It's a hard business. Retail's tough, oh, way yeah. tougher than digital. <laughs> E-commerce is so much easier than than retail. I like, I just like every day I talk to my retail folks. I'm like uh, you that so many of them have, have, have spent their careers in it, and I'm like, you have no idea how much I admire you guys and how hard this is. Like we went the way easier route off the bat to start online. Yeah, that's so. It-
0: Obviously, I think we're all. But yeah, as difficult as it is, uh, it seems like a lot of these digitally native brands are are looking to the store as um, you know it's it's obviously not uh, you know physical retailers and dead people are still shopping in stores. But it doesn't sound like you guys are too keen on working with the retailers like like a Bloomingdale's or or the the third party um, partners like a, like the middlemen. So is that something that you you want to keep it all owned sales direct direct sales?
1: Yeah, I'll be honest. It's not really a huge part of our consideration set at the moment. Um, you know, it, again, what, what's our goal? Is our goal to build a business and to build a brand, or is it to chase revenue? You um, know, mm-hmm. because I don't have a ticking time clock of investors that are saying you have to, you have to offer me liquidity now. You're, you're down to three years left. You have to offer me liquidity. Like going to one of those retailers, um, you know, with the basic terms that they offer, it, it's. Uh, I mean we have really good margins and I can I could tell you that that even for us it would be challenging. Mm-hmm. And um and so you start looking at like what is really the objective? Is the objective just money? Um because if the objective's just money, that's not a great reason to do anything.
0: Um, even but, for a business.
1: <laughs> well, I mean yeah, because I think money comes and goes. Right. Um you know, money is a, looking at 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 money And in that regard, it's just very short term focus, right? Like you're staring two feet in front of your face. Um, And and I think I think that there's if you see a long term opportunity, um, it just depends on your category, you know, but but those those businesses are not exactly thriving right now. And and they're not thriving because they're like the grocery store. And 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 brands like Bull and Branch are the we're the corner butcher, right? Mm -hmm. We we. We are the specialty retailer our staff knows our product whether it's when you call our customer experience team on the phone or you walk into one of our stores these folks really know our product they know betting they know the category um at a much deeper level than than someone would say you know know about produce at the grocery store right or know about meat at the grocery store so um i think what you're seeing is is this res- this surge of of small brands um it provides much more value to the customer at the end of the day than a department store does. So um, I could I could go do business with a department store and and you know it might just be a financially motivated thing in the short term, but it's it's kind of like you know it just feels like like walking backwards a little bit,
0: right? Because you're you're taking this brand that you've built very purposely, purposefully, and subjected it to this area of retail that yeah we all know is is struggling unless you're Amazon. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. They seem to be doing okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we're almost out of time, but I, you know, I'd love to just get a few final thoughts on uh, from you for, for 2018. Uh, what do you think is going to to happen in the direct-to-consumer brand space next year? Uh, it kind of does feel like we're hitting this point of, of maturation. And so brands and investors as well need to go about the space a little bit differently in order to actually be successful.
1: I think we're all going to stop selling products and start mining bitcoins instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but no, in, in in seriousness, I mean, I think that that 2018 I think is going to be a really interesting year. Um, if you look over the last three years at how many digitally native consumer goods brands have have popped up, um, you know, I, when you look at how they're funded, they're they're funded. Um, as if there's an assumption that the market is going to become, you know, there's going to become more dollar-shaped clubs, right? Billion-dollar vertically integrated brands, so to speak. Um, I think what we're going to start to see is a shift where the reality is, is that it's not going to be in a segment of a new billion-dollar brand. It's going to be ten hundred million-dollar brands um, in mm-hmm. segments, and I think the investor community is going to start to wake up and realize and, and to say, "We've probably funded in the past companies to an unrealistic expectation, so those companies have to either be unwound, broken up, sold, um, you know, put out of their misery, whatever it happens to be." Right. And and, and the, the funding is going to become a lot more aligned to the fact that, okay, you're, you're funding a new apparel business and, and, you know, you need them to be profitable. And by the way, at best case, they're going to get two times revenue when they sell 10 years from now. So everybody's expectations, I think, are going to start to come in line because you're also going to start seeing. I mean, I, I joke about cryptocurrency, but if you're looking for highly volatile, highly speculative investments, um, startups may no longer... Be the only ones that can provide that high rate of return as a hedge against other people's conservative portfolios. so um, that's that's kind of an interesting notion where startups are going to start having to compete with other investment vehicles for capital right. um, to a greater extent than they have in the past.
0: right. yeah, I, th- I definitely think it's it's about time for for the man uh, the expectations to be set in line again, <laughs> yeah. The um, bubble right exactly here it comes <laughs> it's bursting um well great well thanks so much scott i really appreciate it um, and enjoyed the chat so thanks for joining us
1: thanks for having me
0: and thank you for listening we'll be back next week with another episode and in the meantime be sure to follow us on itunes stitcher and google play and leave us any feedback you have